I'll start with a story. Back in May, I visited Indonesia for the first time. I went on a five-day trip to the island of Bali. For most of my trip, I was traveling with an Indonesian family, which made everything very easy for me. But for the last two days of my vacation, I struck off on my own to explore. Now, I'm not someone who loves to solo travel. I don't even like eating in restaurants alone, much less traveling by myself. Part of that is due to fear, but I think a big part of it is just that it's a lot more fun to share new experiences and see beautiful things with friends and family. But something inside of me was telling me, Polly, it's been such a busy year of ministry. You're tired. You need space by yourself to actually take some time to process. So I took a risk and booked an Airbnb treehouse just outside the town of Ubud, Bali. What better place to find peace and quiet than a treehouse in Bali, right? When I arrived, my taxi dropped me off just at the edge of the road. From there, I needed to walk along a dirt path that was only accessible by foot or by motorbike. You can see a photo in a second. It was a beautiful, sunny day, and I walked through rice paddies and forest past a few local homes. I could hear the sounds of nature, the forest just brimming with life. It was unbelievably peaceful, and I knew that I had found a place where I could truly rest and have peace. After a full day of exploring the town of Ubud, the sun was setting, my stomach was full from dinner, and it was time to return to my treehouse, and I was pretty excited. By the time I got to the start of the path off the main road, I realized that it was now completely dark. I realized also that it was very different here compared to home in Seattle. No street lights, no house lights, just darkness. I don't know if there's any kids left in the room, but how many of you kids or adults are afraid of the dark? Raise your hand. I'm pretty afraid of the dark. <laughs> but luckily, I was super prepared, and I had packed a headlamp before I even left Seattle just for this part of the trip. So I pulled out my headlamp, put it on, turned it on, and nothing happened. The battery was dead. Yeah, you guessed it. At that moment, I realized that I hadn't bothered to check if the battery was still working. It must have turned on in my backpack during travel and drained itself. So here I was, in the middle of a foreign country, in the forest, in the dark, all alone. Suddenly, everything that had seemed so welcoming and peaceful felt full of danger. I knew that if I wasn't careful on the path, I could easily trip on a tree root and fall into the water of the rice paddies. A motorbike could come whizzing by and collide with me in the dark. There could be wild animals, even snakes. I had a flashback to earlier in my trip when we had encountered a snake in the road. You can see it there. It's huge. It takes up half the road. We had to stop the car and wait for the huge snake to finish crossing. Were there snakes like that here? In the darkness, I had no idea. And the neighbors that had looked so kind in the daylight, who were they really? What if they weren't safe? I felt vulnerable, small, and scared. But there was nothing to do except keep walking forward. My phone was almost dead, but with the little battery that I had left, I turned on my phone's flashlight. It only made a small dent in the darkness, but it was enough to lead me, step by step, along the winding path. Before this moment, I had never truly appreciated the importance of light. Well, this is week two on our series of Joining Jesus, 
where we are exploring the Gospel of John and the I am statements of Jesus. John wrote this Gospel so that we would know Jesus and have life in his name. Last week, we looked at Jesus as the bread of life. Pastor Aaron unpacked the story of Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fish, where Jesus makes the claim that he is the bread of life. Pastor Aaron left us with the invitation to move from spectators to participants in the mission of God. This week, we will explore what it means that Jesus makes the claim that he is light, that he is the light that gives us life. John makes a thesis statement at the beginning of his gospel in chapter one, verses four through five. In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John wrote his gospel for the purpose that we would know Jesus and have life in his name. In John 8, 12, that we just read, Jesus makes the bold claim I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's look more closely at this claim by looking at the Greek. The phrase, ego me" means I am. Throughout John, we see Jesus make a series of ego me" statements. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. These ego me" statements are claims of divinity in the book of John. When Moses encountered God in the burning bush back in the book of Exodus, Moses asked God what he is to say to the Israelites. And God replies, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, that I am has sent you. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew was translated as ego emi. Throughout the Gospel of John, John records these ego emi statements of Jesus because in each of these statements, Jesus is making a claim to divinity. Each of these ego emi statements reveals a clue about the nature of Jesus and in turn reveals to us about the nature of God. Here, Jesus makes the claim that he is the light of the world. The word cosmos is translated world and it has a sense that goes beyond just earth or planet but implies a sense of order or arrangement to the universe. Jesus is the light that restores order to our broken world. And Jesus makes the promise that whoever follows him will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Greek word here for have comes from echo, which means to have or to hold or to possess. The one following Jesus will hold the light of life. There's a sense of grasping, holding on to the light. Light is now within our reach, being offered to us. We are being offered the choice of walking in the light with Jesus as our guide. For the original hearers of Jesus's message, this image of light would have been even more powerful given the context. I want you to imagine that you are in the crowd listening to Jesus. You can close your eyes if it'll help, just don't fall asleep, okay? Imagine that you are in Jerusalem, the most spectacular modern city that you have ever seen. You've come from the countryside to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. You're Jewish, and this is an important holiday. You've made the journey to Jerusalem with your family, 
to remember the way that God delivered your ancestors during the time of the Exodus, when your people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years without a home. You've come to Jerusalem to celebrate, along with just about everyone from your village. It feels to you like the whole world is in Jerusalem right now. Your family set up a campsite in a homemade shelter made out of branches, on a rooftop or in a field, kind of like a modern day music festival. In the morning, there's ceremonial drawing of water from the Pool of Siloam. And at night, it's one big party. At night, the four giant candelabras in the temple courtyard are lit and everyone is singing and dancing well into the night, thanking God and dreaming of his future deliverance for your people out of the Roman Empire. You are waiting for the kingdom of God to come. The light from the Temple Mount is so powerful that the glow can be seen all across Jerusalem. While you're in the city, you hear about a teacher, someone named Jesus. He's been drawing crowds and you're getting curious, so you find your way to where Jesus is teaching. Out under these bright lights in the Feast of Tabernacles, you've managed to find a seat and are listening to Jesus teach. When you hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world, chills run down your spine. Who is this man, you wonder? All right, if your eyes are closed, you can open them now. <laughs> For Jesus's Jewish audience, light symbolized God in action. For Jesus's audience listening during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would remember that God moved with the Israelites in the wilderness, guiding them as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God's presence during the Exodus was a light that guided their paths and protected them from their enemies. But the light of God in action was not reserved for the Jewish people alone. In the Hebrew scriptures, the phrase light of the world could refer to God, Israel, Jerusalem, the patriarchs, the Messiah, or even the law itself. The purpose of light is to make what is unseen visible and God never intended to reveal himself to the Israelites alone. For someone well-versed in the Hebrew scriptures, the phrase light of the world would hearken back to Isaiah 42, six, in which God promises Israel, I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To claim to be the light of the world is presumptuous and the Pharisees are not having it. They argue with Jesus, you are bearing witness to yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus argues here that his testimony is true, even without a witness, because he knows his unique origin and destiny. But to support the claim that he is the light of the world, he argues that he has another witness, God the Father, and that if they actually knew the Father, they would know Jesus as well. To understand Jesus here, we need to understand the context of Jewish law. The law of Moses required two witnesses. In Deuteronomy 19.15, it says, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Later interpretation made this even more strict. Jesus uses the standard Jewish argument of how much more if the witness of two people is enough, how much more powerful is the witness of God the Father and God the Son? 
The root of the problem seems to be that the scribes and Pharisees don't actually know the Father. If they knew the Father, they would know who Jesus is. The passage continues in verse 23. Jesus said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. They said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Why do I speak to you at all? I have much to say about you and much to condemn, but the one who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will realize that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own, but I speak these things as the Father instructed me. And the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what is pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. The Pharisees flat out asked Jesus, Who are you? Isn't that the question? Do you ever wonder if you would have followed Jesus when he was here on earth? I've thought about this a lot as I'm reading stories in the Bible or listening to sermons. If there weren't 2,000 years of history to build on, what would I have thought of Jesus if I had met him in person? Would I have left everything behind to follow him like Peter? Or would I have been curious like Nicodemus, carefully considering and keeping my growing faith private? Would I have been one of the crowds who was fascinated with Jesus? when I saw him perform miracles, but gone against him when the tide of a public opinion opinion turned? Or would I have outright rejected him as a blasphemer and a false prophet like the majority of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Like the Pharisees in this story, the question that we're all asking to Jesus is who are you? Jesus tells them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Only when Jesus has been crucified will it be clear to the world who he really is, that Jesus really is the Son of God. The phrase lifted up comes from the Septuagint of Isaiah 52.13, which describes the suffering servant who is to come. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. We can't fully understand who Jesus is without the context of his death on the cross. Even death on the cross could not extinguish the light. In fact, it is when Jesus is lifted up on the cross and return to glory, that is when the world is able to understand who he truly is, that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Our world today is desperate for light in the darkness. Lately, I've been finding myself just feeling overwhelmed by the darkness in the world, the insurmountable cycles of violence and injustice that we see in our own families, neighborhoods, and world. Over the last year, the news has been full of stories of the situation in Central America. 
the images of a migrant caravan coming north through Mexico dominated the media last fall. This caravan became a political frenzy. In these last few weeks, we've been bombarded with horrifying stories about what is happening at our southern border and the conditions that asylum seekers are facing. While the world wants us to see this as politics, the reality is that our brothers and sisters in Central America are suffering. The situation is extremely complex, and people from South America, Central America, and Mexico are fleeing for a variety of reasons. Because of political agendas and corruption, crop failures due to changes in climate, and increasing gang violence as a result of the incessant traffic of drugs to the US. From a distance where we sit, it can feel overwhelming and hopeless as we hear the news. And it is easy to be paralyzed by the darkness. And yet, there is light in the darkness. Just one week ago, I came back from Guatemala. Guatemala is one of the countries immediately tied to our current border crisis. As poverty in Guatemala increases, more and more economic migrants are finding their way north through Mexico to the US. I had a chance to visit Guatemala just last week on a vision trip with a local ministry called Agros International. I had the privilege of visiting farms and learning about new models of agro-business that are lifting indigenous farmers out of subsistence into prosperity. Work that is targeting one of the core reasons that people are leaving Guatemala for the US. This is Juana, you see her on the screen, an agro's partner that I met last week. Juana is a widow who lives in an area called the Ishil and is an indigenous Mayan. In the 1980s, the Ishil region of Guatemala was the center of violence during their civil war. As the military and guerrillas fought, whole villages were burned and many poor farmers like Juana had to flee to the hills. Many others spent years subsisting off of tree leaves and anything they could forage, careful not to use fire because the smoke would give away their hiding place to the army. At the end of the war, there were many displaced Ishil people. When Agros began, the mission was to help these displaced people return home and develop a pathway to land ownership. Juana's village is named Esperanza, which means hope in English. Her village was started by Agros in 2003 with 25 families. 16 years later, every single one of these families has paid off their loans and now own the land that they farm. But when Juana shared her story with us, she didn't just want to thank Agros for the land or for the farm school that taught her how to develop her agro business, but she wanted to thank Jesus. In tears, she shared how she had come to know God in a new, deeply personal way over her years of living in the village of Esperanza, through her neighbors, the agro staff, and the Christians from the US that have partnered with her village. Juana now has hope and is full of dreams for the future and for the future of her children. Juana's life has been transformed by Jesus. And here's a photo of another family that I met in the Agros village of El Paradiso. I met Katerina, a woman with several young children. Katerina was born during the Civil War. When she was only 10 days old, Katerina's father was killed and her mother took the baby and fled to the hills. Now Katerina is married to Diego, a school teacher who works for the Ministry of Education. Diego took it upon himself to become a teacher with no training at all, as he saw the need of children who had fled their villages. After the war, Katerina and Diego were able to build a life together on a small plot of land. 
Recently, after a Ministry of Health check on the children, they learned that their children were underweight. Chronic malnourishment is an epidemic in the Ishiel. 100% of the children are suffering from malnutrition to varying degrees. Katerina was worried about her young sons and partnered with Agros as they began a project of introducing goats to families. Katerina learned how to care for the goats, how to milk the goats, and how to introduce the goat's milk to her children to get them to drink it since it tastes a little different. After only one month on the goat's milk, her son's weight improved so dramatically that the Ministry of Health worker was shocked and wanted to learn what she'd been doing so that they could replicate it with others. The boys are now all healthy and strong and help care for the goats. You can see one of the sons help care for the goats in this photo. Visiting Guatemala, I heard the stories that we don't hear on the news. In small but real ways, light is piercing the darkness. One village at a time, one family at a time. Jesus is at work in Central America. If we really believe Jesus when he says that he is the light of the world and that the darkness is not able to overcome it, how would that change how we engage the darkest places in our world today? For many of us, I recognize that we may feel like we are already living in the dark, that we have been beaten down and wounded. For those of us who feel this way, hear the good news that Jesus is here in our midst. He is bringing restoration for us and for our neighbors, and he's inviting us to follow him. For others of us, we may be called to step out of our comfort and to live alongside those who are suffering, to lay down our privilege and power, to come alongside the poor and outcast. This is what Jesus did, and this is his call to us today, the same call that he's been giving his followers for 2,000 years, to follow him. Okay, are you ready for some application? Get your pencils out, piece of paper. There'll be a pop quiz next week. No, just kidding. But I encourage you to write this down because I think that helps me remember things. All right, so number one, identify the area in your life that seems the most hopeless. This may be easy. You may immediately know what this is. For others of us, we may need time to simply narrow it down. Two, ask Jesus to reveal how he is at work in this place in this area of darkness. Now this may mean reading some articles to inform yourself if it's a political issue. It may mean prayer walking through your neighborhood. It may mean spending some time in listening prayer with God, asking him to show you what he is doing in your family. Ask Jesus, where is light in the darkness in this place? Three. Commit to taking one small step of faith in this area that feels hopeless. Ask Jesus how he is inviting you to join him. Do some internet research and look for ways to show up for detained migrants. Donate to local causes, to legal cases for separated families, or join a prayer vigil at a detention center. Take a physical, tangible step this week. It will look different for each one of us, and each one of us needs to spend some time with Jesus to listen to where he is calling us. And finally, step four. You thought I was done. There's four steps. Share this small step that you're committing to make with a friend, a family member who is here with you or with your small group this week, and have them hold you accountable. Even better, 
take a step together. Okay, so recap. One, identify a place of darkness. Two, ask Jesus how he is at work. Three, commit to join Jesus and take one small step this week. And four, tell someone else to keep you accountable. This right here is what it means to be the church. Here at UPC, we've been called to join Jesus in his work of reconciliation. If Jesus is the light of the world, we are called to join him. We too are called to be light in this world, reflecting his light. We get to be a part of God's restoration of the cosmos. We get to live as a community in such a way that our neighbors can't help but catch the contagious hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will grasp the light of life. When God led the Israelites through the wilderness, his people no longer had to walk in the darkness, but had access to light giving life. In the same way, Jesus promises us that if we follow him, we can grasp, hold on to the light of life. Now, there's a choice implied here. We have a choice whether we want this light or not. Looking back to that dark night as I walked the path in Bali, there was actually no reason for me to have walked that path in the dark. Before I headed into town that day, the host of the Airbnb had offered me a lantern, a sturdy, bright, functioning lantern. They knew the path that I would have to walk, and as good hosts wanted to be sure that I could avoid any of the dangers of the darkness. But instead of accepting the offer, I turned them down because I had packed my own headlamp. I figured that I was familiar with my headlamp and I carried it all this way, taking up precious space in my backpack so I didn't want to waste it. So I rejected the offer of life. But as we know, my own headlamp failed. Battery is dead. But all I had had to do was accept the lantern that had been offered to me and I would have been safe. Jesus offers us the same thing. He offers us light. He offers us life. He offers us himself. But we have to accept what he offers. We have to take his offer of light and firmly grasp it. Knowing that Jesus offers us the light doesn't light our paths. Knowing who Jesus is isn't enough. We need to say yes to his invitation to join him. Join me in prayer. Give us the courage, God, to grasp the light that you offer us. We confess the ways that we have lacked hope and have avoided places of pain and darkness because we aren't really sure that you are at work. We know that we don't have enough strength on our own and that we need to completely rely on you and your spirit if we want to step out of comfort and into the dark. We believe that you are the light of the world and help our unbelief. Give us the courage to walk alongside you and take a risk this week to show love and be tangible light to our neighbors in a hurting world. We love you, Lord. Amen.